Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. All right, Ephesians. We've been trucking through. Thanks, uh, Dave Dean, for taking us through the last uh, two weeks and getting into it. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at our next uh, little chunk. Um, But Dave, sorry to condense your two weeks of hard work to one statement uh, that you made, but um, I'd encourage you to go back and and listen to those first two weeks if you haven't had the chance. Um, But to summarise that, uh, Dave said this the other week. Salvation is a triune work of God from eternity with the Father's choosing to eternity in the Spirit's sealing. And at every point, we will see that salvation is God's initiative. How good. So that was just a little taste maybe of the of the last uh, couple of weeks that we've been through in Ephesians. So again, go back and, and have a listen. But if you would allow me, I'm just going to pray and then we'll we'll tuck in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for this glorious book that we have, which is your word given to us to read, to study, to learn from more of who you are and who we are and how we relate to you and how we relate to those around us and the world around us. God, we have everything we need here in your word. Uh, so, Father, thank you so much for the blessing it is to to sit here and, and teach it and share what you've been teaching me. So go before me, uh, Lord, and I pray that my words would be yours. Amen. So, again, Dave gave us a bit of a, an introduction to, to what's happening in, in the book of Ephesians as well. Um, but I want to take us back. I want to I picture a little bit of, of what this city of Ephesus was like, because I think it helps to give us a, a bit of context as well. Like to know the people of Newcastle, you might want to know a bit of what Newcastle is like, what we do here. So Ephesus, right, it was a thriving seaport, right, on the Aegean Sea. Ephesus had one of its, you know, features was it had the third largest library, right, of of the time. So everything that was known to to the people, they would want to record, they would want to write down and save. Previously, that was done orally. But then once they started to, to write, it was all recorded and they would house it in these libraries. And so Ephesus had the third largest one of these right? Uh, it also had a huge market in Ephesus. So you're walking along, you would see the massive library there. You could go there, you could, you know, hear readings being done. You would go to the market, you could buy, you could sell, you could trade. Being a port city, that was a big thing for them, right? So they had a big retail and commerce, right? It was key for them. They also, next, you might see the massive amphitheater that they had there, right? You could seat 25,000-ish people, Ephesus had lots of visitors, not only for trade, but for tourism as well. So they had had somewhere to be entertained, right? So they had this massive amphitheater. Uh, Also, as you go along, 
well, maybe you want to worship a god. And for them, main one would have been Artemis, right? And they could go there and not only could they go to that temple and engage in all sorts of things in the worship of, of Artemis, but they could also take a little piece of that home with them if they wanted a little carved statue, which uh, we know if we read in Acts caused a bit of problems there. Um, right, so we have this city. The city of, of Ephesus uh, was economically thriving. It had a high regard for, for knowledge or, or learning. It was consumer and entertainment driven, and it was also deeply pagan in their worship, right? So maybe it doesn't sound too different to a lot of uh, cities that, that we have today and, and, that we, and that we visit today, but this is where, when we get to our section, and we'll read it in a moment, this is where Paul is, is writing to and the church of Ephesus is, right, in, in this city. And this is where Paul's prayer, as we read today, comes into and speaks into. So the passage we have today continues us through our, our series of uh, sit, walk, stand, and, and in our sit part, right? So we sit in the spiritual blessings of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We walk in them. We stand in them together as God's people, right? Sit, walk, stand. So where are we going today? We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 15 through, through 23. And we're going to break it up like this. Firstly, um, we're going to see and we're going to look at what Paul is thankful in the church of Ephesus, right? In verse 15 or the start of. Secondly, uh, we'll look um, at Paul's prayer for the church. And we're going to divide that in four main sections. Firstly, Paul prays that God would give wisdom and revelation with the result of having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Next point that we'll look at is Paul prays that they may know, they may know the hope to which they have been called, the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of God's power towards those who believe. Thirdly, Paul will pray and Paul shows what has been worked in Christ, in that Christ is raised, he is seated, and he rules. And then fourthly, Paul wraps up by using this phrase, all, right? Christ puts all, so he puts all, he gave all, and he fills all. So if you're taking notes and want to remember those four key words, it's God gives, no, worked, all. So that's our, our four words. Let's, let's read the passage. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So 
first 15 starts for this reason, right? Paul begins by, by using this phrase. So for, for what reason? Or it could be translated therefore or wherefore, that phrase for, for this reason. So it calls us back to what we just read and what we studied in, in the last two weeks, right? Verse 15 through, through 23 uh, are one sentence in the Greek, um, as are the previous 13 and 14. So if you look at verses 13 and 14, you'll see they have heard the word of truth, accepted the gospel of salvation, believed in Christ, been sealed with, by the Holy Spirit, and been guaranteed an inheritance in Christ. And Paul says, you know all this. Let me tell you, I am thankful for you and I pray for you, right, for this reason. So Paul next, he goes, I have, because I have heard, right? So firstly, Paul expresses he is thankful for them because he has heard two things, right? What does it say there? He heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love towards the saints. And I think these two things, they, they go hand in hand, right? If we read 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, whom he has seen, and cannot love God who he has not seen, right? If we do not have faith in Christ, then firstly, other believers are not our brothers and sisters in Christ because we ourselves are not in Christ. And secondly, it would be disingenuous to say that we love the saints if we do not first love Christ. And the church at uh, Ephesus has a, you know, this brought up a bit later on in the Bible, right? We see in, in Revelation, the church at Ephesus are pulled up on their, their love for Christ. If you, if you read in chapter 2, 3 through 5 of Revelation, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, the, the church at, at Ephesus over time put an emphasis on the works and deeds driving what they did rather than the love and the service of the saints being an outworking uh, and an overflow of their love for Christ first and foremost. I think you and I need to take this to, to heart as we begin and, and we look at, at Paul's prayer. What's the phrase that's repeated in, in these letters to the churches in, in Revelation? He who has an ear, let him hear, right? Let us be careful not to let the intention and the motivation of our love be the deed itself, right? But let it be that we have a faith in and love for Christ first and foremost. Next, Paul begins his, continues his prayer here, and we'll, this is where we start our, our four words. Firstly, may he give you. He first prays that God the Father would give the church in Ephesus three things. Remember that this is our first key word to give, right? He prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom, revelation in the knowledge of him, 
and having the eyes of their heart enlightened. Firstly, the the spirit of of wisdom. Paul wanted the church to be in Ephesus to be wise. Remember the the environment that they live in, based around money, based around pagan worship, based around um, you know knowledge, and we'll get to that a bit later as well. Job twelve thirteen says, "To God belong wisdom and power; counsel and understanding are His." Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, fear, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I hope you're getting the point here. There's a lot about wisdom in the Bible. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So what an awesome way for for Paul to to start his prayer here. Paul starts by reminding the Ephesians of whom this wisdom is coming from by saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. There is no mincing words with, with Paul. In this big, long sentence, he lays out, and we'll continue to see it bit by bit, his heart for the church. And he begins that by asking that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. What next? What else does Paul ask God to give them? Revelation in the knowledge of him. What does it mean or or look like to have a, a revelation in the knowledge of God? Well, a revelation, um, as it may sound, is a revealing or an uncovering, a disclosing, right? If I can go to Revelation again, Revelation 1.1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place. So God revealed, uncovered or disclosed to John in the book of Revelation, Jesus and the things that would come, right? That was his purpose. He was revealing him. And Paul wants the Ephesian church to have the knowledge of God revealed to them. Wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand, right? Wisdom needs knowledge. There was a famous writer named Alexander Pope, and he wrote, The proper study of mankind is man, to which Charles Spurgeon responded to this statement. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man, I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosopher, philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child God, of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Friends, I can't help but feel that in our culture today, we lack wisdom and we lack knowledge. Why? Because it's self-absorbed, right? We only care about knowing that which seems to get us ahead or promote us or just completely mesh with our own ideals or the things that we want or the things that we care about. Remember this huge library that they had in Ephesus? The Ephesians cared about knowledge, right? But Paul wants them to have wisdom and revelation and knowledge of who? Of Jesus. The word here is to, for knowledge is epignosis, right? The Greek word. And this is not just a general knowledge, but this is a, an experiential knowledge, right? 
This would be the difference between someone asking if you know John Doe down the road. One response would be, I've heard of him. I've heard of old mate that lives down the road. Or if you had an epignosis knowledge of John Doe down the road, you would say, yeah, I know him. He comes over for dinner regularly. We hang out regularly. We go fishing. We talk. We spend lots of time together. I really know him. I have an experiential knowledge of him. This is a knowledge of God we have in Christ through the Spirit, a personal and intimate knowledge, an experiential knowledge of who he is. As Paul begins to expand the picture for us, he prays that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened because of this. I don't know about you, but that's not really language that we hear or use today, right? Sounds a bit strange. So so what is what is Paul talking about here with the eyes of the heart being enlightened? Well, first of all, and this is a slight tangent, but when I read passages like this and it sounds a bit like Christianese or it's a bit difficult to to understand or yeah, I'm just like, what on earth are you talking about? Have this uh this saying that comes to mind from a, a book I read, and, and the guy who said this, Dr. John Walton, says, we believe that the Bible was written for us, that it is, it's for everyone of all times and places because it is God's word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view, right? So the Bible, it's for us. It's, God, it's God's word. But... It wasn't written with our culture. It wasn't written with in our language, right? So we've got to do a bit of work. We've got to get a little bit of context into what's happening, a bit of understanding, right? That's why we started with this picture of, of Ephesus. So when the Bible, right, to, to get back to it, so when the Bible refers to, to the heart, it is referring to the deepest seat of feeling, of emotion, understanding. It's where our motives and our intentions come from, Right? That's the heart. One example would be Genesis 6-5 when God says the motives and intentions of the heart of the people were only wicked all the time, right? The heart is referred to also is the place that is either submitted to or hardened against God, right? We see that with, with Pharaoh. His heart was hardened towards God. We see that with the nation of Israel, right? That they will be taken their heart of stone and given a heart of flesh. The eye is used, right, as a conduit through which the heart is, is affected. Remember in Luke eleven thirty four, the eye is a lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So what Paul is saying here is, the wisdom and knowledge of God opens man's heart to, what's our next word? Know, that you may know. And Paul prays three things for them, right? That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us. Who believe? What is the hope 
to which you and I have, have been called to, the church has been called to. I think this, this word, the, or this phrase, the hope to which you have been called, it implies two things, right? That we can indeed have hope, true hope, and that there is a calling to it. So Paul here is saying, and let's read a few passages. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1-2 Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Friends, God has called us to join his family through Christ. We looked at that last week. God has called us from children of darkness to being children of the King. And though we live in a world that is broken by sin and we war against the sinful desires, our flesh, every day. We're going to talk at the end of Ephesians about the armour that we've given to, to do that good fight and fight his battle, right? We hope because God has promised in the return of Jesus as ruler and king, the one who will make all things new. The church of Ephesus, right, as we do today, could feel the pull of the false and unfounded hope of the world. They had access to wealth, they had access to knowledge, they had access to power. But Paul says, I want you to know the hope to which you have been called. Next, Paul wants the church to know about Christ's inheritance in the church. I don't know about you, but when you hear about inheritance, what are you, what are you normally thinking? right? Maybe what mum and dad might leave you, what you might leave your kids, you know, that's what you're thinking about for your inheritance. Why are you smirking over there, dad? <laughs> right? That's okay. Look, so <laughs> we hear the word inheritance, right? And that's what the things we normally think of, right? In a worldly sense. And we looked at the inheritance that we have in Christ, right? At the end of uh, chapter 14, I believe it was. Uh, verse 14. But as believers, and this is what we think of too, our inheritance in Christ, but Paul says something a little bit different here, right? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And to help us understand this, I want to read Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. It says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, 
He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. This is incredible, right? We, the people of God, are so precious in the sight of God that we are considered Christ's inheritance. We're his inheritance. In verse 14 of chapter 1, we see that the Spirit is the guarantee of the saints' inheritance as we look to our final redemption from the power of sin, right? Verse 14. And here in verse 18, the saint is actually the inheritance for Christ. Pretty cool. That was a light bulb moment for me. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, because of the glorious grace verse 6, of the glorious Father, verse 17, he will receive his glorious inheritance, verse 18. Maybe you already knew this. Maybe you already had the light bulb moment before I did, but that was pretty cool to me to sort of think about it like that, that we as the church are Christ's inheritance. Pretty amazing. What is the third thing that Paul prays the believer would know, right? the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So not only are we Christ's inheritance, but Paul Paul wants the believer to know what the power is, right? His power, and key phrase, towards us. Remembering this, this long sentence, right? That if you don't take a breath, you just go through the whole thing. If you can, without passing out, started with, for this reason. Paul says he wants the church to grasp the greatness of God's power. Why? Because God chose us to be holy and blameless before him, verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption, verse 4b and 5. He redeemed us through his blood, verse 7. Lavished wisdom and insight upon us, verse 8 made known the mystery of his will towards us, verse 9, given an inheritance, verse 11, and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, verse 14. All these things show the power of God towards us as believers. William MacDonald writes, This is the power which God used in our redemption, which he uses in our preservation, and which he will yet use in our glorification. Amazing, right? It's like the Bible's all tied together. Paul doesn't stop there. He wants us, he wants to, us to further see this power of God towards us, right? Towards those who believe. So on November 9th, 1965, right, there was this power outage and it had affected 30 million people in eight US East Coast states. And the inhabitants of the Canadian province of Ontario and Quebec for about 13 hours, right, just after 5 p.m., at the height of rush hour. The lights began to flicker in New York, and within seconds, the blackout affected Manhattan, Bronx, Queens, and most of Brooklyn. In Brooklyn alone, right, there's 80,000 people, 800,000 people uh, were trapped on a subway, just stuck there because of the power outage. Trains stopped running, the plane circled, darkened airports, uh, you know, trying to find an emergency runways. And then to top it all off, uh, with all the television stations, being out, right? People started to make their own uh, rumours of, of what happened. This was UFOs, this was the communists, you know? But at the end of the day, all this was just a failure that was caused by a breakdown in the power grid, 
right? No UFOs, no communists, nothing, right? So how does Paul further show the power of God towards those who believe? With what he worked in Christ, in that he raised, he seated, and he rules. And that's our third and second to last word, is that what God worked in Christ, right? There's no glitches, no breakdowns, no lack in power, according to what Christ has done for us. One of the key phrases here is, again, and I mentioned it earlier, towards us. Firstly, Paul shows the power of God towards us in that Christ was raised from the dead. Paul builds this, this emphasis, and if you're reading the, the thing that he uses three words, power, strength, or great, it can be translated as well, and might. Friends, Satan and his armies would have loved to keep Jesus in that grave. Any man can die and every man and woman will die, right? Even Lazarus died again. But the power of God towards us in Christ was that he raised him from the dead, right? Death could not hold you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave, the praise of your glory. You have no equal, you have no rival. Forever you will reign. John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was oh, sorry, and God's grace was so powerful at work in them. Friends, the power of God towards us who believe, according to what is worked in Christ, is that Jesus was victorious over sin and death by raising him from the dead, and in turn, right? That is the power that we can proclaim to others, that they may believe, that they may know the power towards them. Once Christ was raised from the dead, he is now seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. And thanks for doing the worship songs that like sum up what we're reading today. It's so good. For Christ to be seated at the right hand of the Father shows the position and privilege of Christ, Hebrews 1, 13, shows power, Matthew 26, 64, shows distinction, Hebrews 1, 3, it shows delight, 16, 11, and dominion, 1 Peter 3, 22. So the power of God, according to what was worked in Christ, is that Christ is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. But how is this towards us who believe? Well, and John's not here today, but sorry to read your passage again, John, when you listen to this, but Ephesians just comes together. All right, Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friends, in Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be 
glorified with him. Friends, our redemption and our glorification is based on what we have achieved for us, towards us, through Christ. We can't buy our way in. We can't work our way in. We can't force our way in. What Christ accomplished for us is God's power towards us and in us. And in this life, hey, that might look like suffering. So Christ was raised from the dead. He is seated in the heavenly places at the Father's right hand. And next we read that he, his rule and authority is above anyone or anything else. Who are some powerful people that you can think of in our world today? No one? Nothing. All right, there you go. Well, if there are any, anything to go off, uh, Forbes gives us the, the top 10 most powerful people of, of 22, right? We got Xi Jinping of China, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Donald Trump of the United States, Angela Merkel of Germany, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, uh, Pope Francis, Roman Catholic Church, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Mohammed bin Salam al-Sad, Saudi Arabia, uh, Narendra Modi of India, and Larry Page of Google. Right? They're the, if you couldn't think of them, they're apparently the our top 10 most powerful people, right? These people are listed here, why? Because of money, political influence, religious influence, all those sorts of things, right? Our passage today, what does it tell us? There are and will continue to be those who are seen to have power, right? Authority, dominion, and, you know, we could name them. But at the end of the day, they pale in comparison to Christ, right? Is that, is that how we truly see, see Christ, that he is above all these other people? Is that how I live my life? seeing Christ as above and in authority over all these people from history past to eternity future? How should we be living in light of that, right? Remember, you and I as the church, we're Christ's inheritance and he is our inheritance, right? He's powerful. You and I, uh, if you're a believer here today, you and I are servants of the most high king, so how do we live? How do we live in light of that? Romans 12:1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he that uh, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the true way to worship him. We give everything in service and worship of the one who is above every ruler, above every authority, above every power, above every dominion, his power, that power will never cease and will never decrease. So the power of God towards us is firstly demonstrated in that Christ was raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand, and his rule and authority is above all other. And that leads us to our final word, all, which is used four times there in the last two verses. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul done here has done here is amazing, right? 
Not sure about you, but reading this, my, my mind was called back to, maybe that's just because we've been reading through Genesis and Bible study, but Genesis 1.26, where mankind is set up to rule and reign over creation, right? Adam and Eve ultimately fail this, and as they're being kicked out of the garden, right, because of their sin, God says that not only will it be hard for them to work the ground, but that Adam and Eve and all mankind will return to the dust. They will die, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were now a slave, so to speak, to the land. In order to survive, they would have to sweat and they would have to fight, so to speak, with the land. Adam was brought to life originally from the dust of the earth and was not intended to return to it, but because of sin... Death now had power over Adam and Eve. But there's more, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We just read, right, that Christ was raised from the dead, showing his power over the grave. And here Paul reminds us that Christ is restoring the garden state and fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, right? Paul shows us that all things are under his feet. Creation, every power, authority, dominion, death, sin, the head of the serpent, all things are under Christ's feet. And Paul keeps pumping along here. He says he gave, right? Paul says, you know what? Not only has God the Father put all things under Christ's feet, He has given Christ as what? The head of the church. Yes, Ephesians, this is what we're talking about. Christ is your head. Simply, if we are not governed by Christ, if we are not led by Christ, if we do not see Christ as the one who was raised from the dead, is seated at the right hand of the Father and has rule and authority over all things, then we do not see Christ. As the body cannot function without the head, so the church cannot function as it should without submitting to the full leadership of Christ. Remember, he is above all things, in particular his church. If you're sitting there thinking, well, you know what, I've got a problem with submitting to authority. I don't really like that. Let me just remind you, and I'm going to read Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Here's the kicker. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Friends, may that be our fellowship, right? May we encourage one another to follow Christ in that way, to submit to him as the head of the church because he wants to serve us. He wants to lead us. Finally, Paul drives home the point, right, by showing that Christ fills all things namely the body of Christ. Some render this verse to say Christ is filled by the church and the English translation can kind of lead or or read that way. 
But in my reading, I think the Greek lends itself a bit more to Christ filling the church. And a rendition of, of verse 23 could, could read like this, which is his body, which is being filled by the one who fills all things with all things. Acts 17, 22 through 28 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the area, thank you, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also on the altar, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Remember the big temple they had of Artemis there in Ephesus? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Friends, again, without Christ there is no church Without Christ, we do not live and move and have our being. Christ is all and fills all. How? Well, what have we just read? Through Christ, we are given wisdom, revelation, with the result of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Through Christ, we know the hope to which we have been called. We know the riches of Christ's inheritance in the church. We know the greatness of God's power towards those who believe. In Christ, God has worked the raising of Christ from the dead. He has seated him at his right hand and he rules over all things. And all things are under his feet or the church should be under his leadership. Christ is all that we need. He Christ is our fullness. He fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the time that we could spend in it. Father God, I pray that as a church, we would be submitted to you as the head. Father God, help us to do that. May we put aside our fleshly desires, Lord, and may we serve and be submitted to you and what you would have for us. Father, we know that you're good and you're gracious, but God, we know that one day, as Christ fulfilled every promise in that he would return, he would die on the cross and he would be raised from the dead to give us freedom from our sins, so we know that he will return one day for his church. God, we know that he will return and he will make all things new and right. Father, when that day comes, may we be found to be on your side. God, may we serve you humbly in word and deed. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.